Welcome to another episode of the Launch Notes podcast. I'm Blake from Launch Notes. Really excited to be joined today by Ciara Peter. Ciara is VP of product at Robin. She's led product teams at a bunch of well-known companies like Box, BetterWorks, Salesforce, just to name a few. Really excited to dive in today, Ciara. <clears throat> welcome to the Launch Notes podcast. Like, really excited for the chat today. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's do a little a little background on just like how you got involved doing product work in the first place. I'd love to kind of hear how you got into this path and what sort of inspired you to to work on product teams. Oh, Blake, you had no idea what you were getting in. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. Right. Well, first, my background, I will tell you that I never in a million years thought that I would be a VP at a tech company when I was growing up. My background starts when I finished college, my first job, bartender in Beach Bob. So I lived in San Diego. I bartended a couple of these great places and I wanted to promote my bar events. So what I did is I went and I bought an HTML for dummies book. I bought a bootleg Photoshop CD on eBay nice. and, uh, and some Dreamweaver, which was like the <laughs> website building application of oh, yeah. yesteryear. Don't worry, Adobe. I paid. I have given paid a lot of money to Adobe since then. But who among us doesn't have a couple Adobe pirate experiences in our background? Like, right. I don't think any of us exactly. would be here if that wasn't the case. Exactly. Uh, yeah. See, like that's that probably. That probably back in the day, like if they, if anyone had known about product-led growth back then, that's like exactly what it is. You know, like give the people when they don't have any money, just like let them get a free copy. And then later yeah. they'll just end up paying you thousands and thousands of dollars. So like we can say yeah. that we helped Adobe and other companies like that pioneer PLG. I'm going to start using that. That's a great one. But uh, yeah. anyway, so, <laughs> so yeah, so I started building websites, building graphics. I can all, you know, it's kind of like now there's influencers and people who do all these like amazing produced videos for TikTok. I'll call myself like a my, more of a MySpace designer. Nice. Yeah. And for the youngsters, MySpace was like, MySpace was like pre-Facebook. That's where you go to hang out with your friends online. Mm -hmm. All of this is really embarrassing, but I love telling this yeah. story because I was no. really just kind of not prepared for any of it. Another, so, another so nice introduction, that. introduction to HTML too with MySpace. I think that a lot of us first saw our first like div tags inside of a MySpace editor. Exactly. Like who are, who are you? If you just have a, if you don't have any glitter on your MySpace, you're kind of like nobody. <laughs> yep. Yep. Or okay. like a fallout boy grab or something. Yeah. The auto, I think <laughs> auto playing music happens. That was a big thing with websites back then. You'd open a web page and a song would play, be playing. Yeah. Yeah. So it was awesome. It was inspirational. But I actually really liked doing this design, basically. And I decided to apply to art school, to like a grad school program. I got in and I moved home to San Francisco and I went to art school. So in art school, I studied advertising and also digital media. And I was working and still like bartending, as Tupac says, trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents. Yes. And I would just help with any project. 
And one of the projects, like I, I helped a friend of mine who did a lot of philanthropy and I helped him build a website and do one of his like promotional campaigns for a fundraiser. And that led to him asking me when I was finishing school, if I wanted to do a contract design job at a company called Salesforce. And I was interviewing at ad agencies, trying to get a job as a junior copywriter, making like $6 an hour. And actually couldn't get hired at any ad agency it was like so competitive everybody wanted that job so i was like i'll come work with you guys at salesforce so what was this help sort of set the scene what kind of era of salesforce was this what was going on at the time yeah so post ipo this is 2008 and so i joined when it was 1500 employees things like the app exchange and like the platform had just launched so it was still Sales, CRM was the core product. Not a lot of acquisitions happening. It was just really like kind of a one product company that was doing very well, um, but starting to expand into a platform. Got it. Got it. Very cool. So my first project. So actually the team I worked on, the team I worked on was hired to, or was, our responsibility was like basically take project concepts we were working on and make them into these, I'll say this what's a more positive word for ridiculous? Like we just make these ridiculous demos. So, okay. So my first, let's call it whimsical. So my first project was Mark Benioff was friends with Neil Young and uh, Neil of, had of, a of Lincoln course, by the way. car yeah. that he decided that he decided to make fully electric. So he took his Lincoln from like the sixties or seventies, made it fully electric and he called it the link bolt. But just having the link bolt wasn't good enough. They had to track its performance on the force.com platform. Mm -hmm. So my first job there was building an app that would um, show the stats of the electric car as it was driving around. This was like consumption and all this stuff. We built a website called link bolt where you, oh my gosh. There's that show Pimp Your Ride. We did a play on that. It was like yes. Pimp Your Ride or something where people could yeah. upload yeah. their, people could upload what sort of their like classic car turned electric and then they'd be in this photo gallery. And yeah, we, we launched that and showed it at, at Dreamforce with 10,000 people. And uh, he That's drove the awesome. car on stage. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the car only made it a couple more runs, but. Yeah. Those, those are, that was my first job in tech. It was just That's like, awesome. we just have these kind of really fun. What is it with driving cars on the stage at Dreamforce? I feel like I've heard like three versions of that, right? They did, I think they did the back to the future car at some point. Yeah. A friend of mine definitely drove a tractor onto the stage one year. There we go. Yeah. It's all about wow. the show. It is. What do they it's, see? Like that's that's showbiz, that's showbiz, baby. Um, yeah, no, like, God, Salesforce is so. That must have been an exciting time to work there because they are so good at that stuff. And I think a lot of people, like Salesforce, has been around so long now. A lot of people don't really recognize as much how innovative they were, especially like coming up with all the all the marketing and PR and the stunts that Mark would do and. All of that stuff is like a really great kind of case study and just like brute forcing your way into like 
the public consciousness like over and over again. It's just like a marketing and branding masterclass, I feel like, to go back and look at those, you know, those early Salesforce campaigns and stuff they did. 1000%. And here's the, like what I will say. It, it also is that, it also is that crash course in prototyping things and seeing what sticks and seeing what people like. Uh, mm -hmm. Like a little bit more serious project, they were launching the service cloud. What our team was tasked to do in Twitter had just launched and our, our demo was to build integrations with Facebook and Twitter. So like you could look at a person that mm -hmm. doing customer service activity with, and you could see what they had recently done on social media, which in 2008 was a big deal oh. or 2009. Yeah. That was a big yeah. deal. And what actually happened was, you know, people got so excited about it. So the product team took that feedback and actually went and built it. So like we were kind of mm -hmm. the MVP team, you know, I, like mm -hmm. sometimes I'm like, oh, we're the demo team. We just built, you know, smoke and mirror. Uh, but yeah, it, we really were like the the prototyping team, the MVP team, and that team is hundreds or thousands of people today, and it's become really successful. And what ended up happening is like I ended up actually working on some really strategic accounts where, and also that's what you do with the platform because these things were all technically possible with the platform, but you had to build them. So yeah, I ended yeah. up getting brought into. I ended up getting brought into like really strategic deals where they'd have a customer that is like, this is our goal. We got to imagine it. And I design an app and build it for them and just show them the possibilities. And it, it really did help yeah. out with sales. Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. I, I believe that. And that other companies I've noticed where, you know, one of the previous startups I worked at was like a very, like very horizontal, like kind of no code workflow builder product. And hundred percent, the best way to demo that product with the customer was actually like, Hey, like call number one, like you kind of tell us what you're envisioning accomplishing. And then actually we're going to come back a week later or whatever, and we'll build that out for you in the meantime. And then we'll actually demo you, your workflow and your application in this. And then it becomes this like show don't tell moment instead of like, yeah, the product can do this. It can do that. It can do kind of whatever you're sort of showing them like, okay, like, you told us you want to accomplish this. We actually built that and it does some other cool things that maybe you didn't expect. It's just like a lights out way to demo a product if, you know, that's the situation you're in. Well, a lot of people are visual thinkers and I think visual thinking doesn't just, visual thinking doesn't just mean you have to see it to believe it. It means you have to see it to understand it. Uh, now, like I'm in a position where I evaluate products and if I can't really, can't see my own data in the product, it's really hard. So that's why, like, you know, one one point of demos is to actually test out the functionality or trials or free experiences. One point is to test it out, but I think there's probably a significant part of the population that can't really understand it till they see their stuff there. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great. That's a great point. Okay. Cool. 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 So. You're doing, you know, you're doing all this demo, demo work at Salesforce. You kind of, did you continue doing that in your tenure there? Did you kind of, I, I think you kind of grew into a couple of departments and things there too. Yeah. So um, I had a great like manager slash mentor that I kind of followed around the company. And so he left nice. that team after a couple of years. So the company went from 1500 people to 15,000 people in the time that I was there. 
And I just like took every opportunity I could to work on different stuff. So um, one interesting thing here is like I've actually been at product is my main focus, but I've had some I've had several like design leadership specific jobs. And I've sure. never in my career actually reported to a designer or a design director. I've always reported to the business people. And mm. so I think like my kind of strategy was work in a place where my skill set is really valued and I'm a little bit different than everybody and learn from mm. people who have different skills than I do because I didn't go that MBA MBA mm. path. I went, you know, I went to art school and yeah. yeah. That's how I learned. So yeah, then I started working mm -hmm. on, I had opportunity to work on like the first mobile app um, that they launched. I had opportunity to help integrate a company that, that was acquired and I just did more producty stuff, but yeah. product at Salesforce was very technical at the time. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to do more product, but I didn't really think that was the, that was the way to go. So I went and worked for a startup. Really like my resume looked pretty design forward. Who's going to hire me? Yeah. And especially I was like a senior director when I left there and mm -hmm. who's going to hire me as a senior director of product with no product experience. So I had to figure out my own like bet I was willing yeah. to take. So I went to a series A startup and just kind of bet on myself. And my whole my thing there was like, I didn't even really have a job title when I started. And my whole thing was like, yeah. okay, I'm going to just start doing the product job. Nice. And yeah. we're just going to see what happens. And hopefully I can, mm -hmm. hopefully I can stick with that job. And so we got our series A the first week and I started hiring PMs and the rest was history. But like, nice. really learning product for me was, all right, we got a bunch of problems to solve and I have mm -hmm. to figure out how to solve them. Yeah. There are, sure, there are frameworks. And I think it's, I think it's helpful for people to learn product framework, especially Especially when you're working at a company at scale and you need some way to translate things across the company. But for me, it was me and the two engineering co-founders, let's go set up Jira yeah. to talk to some some people that have this problem that we think need to be solved. Let's validate it. Let's mm -hmm. design and build some prototypes and hired PMs. And you know, yeah. it was great. So worked there yeah. for worked there for four years, took a little break. It was pretty tiring <laughs> yeah yeah pretty tired. took a break and then yeah like and then i just got an opportunity to work yeah my next job was a box and managed a 500 million dollar portfolio that was like awesome experience and then i went to gainsight medallia and i kind of took that that whole time to figure out what i really like working on which is kind of mid-stage startups yeah yeah so what what do you think were the main things that helped you kind of not just learn product, but learn to like run a product organization? Because I know along the way you like you you kind of really humble about your your beginning there, figuring it out. But I you, you've led some pretty impressive teams along the way. Yeah, like what did you learn about like kind of overseeing product at sort of like the high strategic level? So I think that. I wouldn't have been successful in the early days without a lot of operational frameworks. Mm -hmm. So OKRs, metrics, like I kind of needed those boundaries in the early days. But, and I guess like I'll talk about some 
strategies that I've learned and maybe learned over time. So one is just really over communicating. So I think like part of it is managing the actual team, the organization, setting the roadmap and stuff. Part of it is a huge part of it is how you manage your customers, how you manage yeah. your stakeholders at the company. And yeah. if sales aren't good that quarter, it's eventually becomes product's fault. So yeah, if you're having churn, it's product's fault. Um, I think proactive over communication is a really big one, especially if you work with like a founder CEO, that person gets really excited about a lot of ideas typically. And like, they want to know that you have those, like you're tracking them, you're thinking about them, but also if it's not your first priority, where it stands on the priority list. Mm -hmm. um, that, that I think was a big one for me. Another one is figuring out what kind of presentation style works for you. So mm -hmm. what I mean by this is I think there are two approaches. There are probably a lot more, but two approaches that I've tried. One is memorize everything. And one is just know what you're talking about. Yeah. And yeah. I will never again try to give a presentation on something that I don't really know what I'm talking about because I can't memorize anything. Like, I just don't have a very good memory of facts. The yeah. patterns and repeatability stylistically is great. Like, memorizing words is awful. I mean, I've bombed a couple public... I don't know if everyone else would say I bombed, but, like, I felt like I bombed these kind of public presentations, whereas later down the road... If I can just take myself a little bit less seriously, crack a joke here and there, and just really know the subject matter, um, that works really well. And a yeah. tip for anyone who, by the way, I don't think public speaking is at all necessary to be successful at this job, but mm -hmm. it something I wanted to get better at. Uh, mm -hmm. But something that a lot of people don't don't notice is like you see some of these people that are doing this doing the rounds, doing the circuit. They do a lot of public speaking opportunities and you're like, how do they do that? How do they memorize them? That must take so much time. If you look at that, actually, a lot of those people are talking about the same thing over and over again with a slightly different spin. So oh, yeah. I also Definitely. recommend for anyone that wants to do a little bit more public speaking, pick one topic and tweak it. Tweak it a yeah. little bit every time. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's really good advice. I picked um, up on... I would always listen to when I, especially when I was at Atlassian, I would like listen to the executives, whether it was like earnings calls or, you know, someone would be on a podcast or like give a presentation or something. I would kind of pick up on that. Like, oh yeah, these people who are like kind of operating at the highest level, like they've got their kind of like go-to anecdotes. They've got a couple go-to points that they like to make or concepts that they like to illustrate. It's like, yeah, they kind of like, you know, there's like some nuance and they can kind of mix it up or like add, add different stuff or whatever, but it's like they kind of have those things in their back pocket. And I kind of, that was kind of a little trick as well, where it's like, like you said, you don't have to memorize yeah. everything. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. But I'll give an unpopular, um, okay. an unpopular management kind of practice, not unpopular, but people just like to talk about differently. Yeah. Is I think that having a regular cadence of reviews is really important because you don't want to micromanage people. You don't want to read a product requirement document, but you know, there's kind of like a debate of, Hey, like the, the utopian way of talking about things is, well, just like set a goal for each of the teams and let them do what it takes to hit that goal. 
the reality is like you're going to have different level of people on different teams. The reality is you have customer commitments that you sometimes really need to to reach in order to hit revenue. And like there's varying levels of room for mistakes. And I think like getting, I think that you, that early PMs have to get critiques and have to get feedback Mm -hmm. in order to grow. And the last thing you want is someone to work on something for like a quarter or two, ship it totally the wrong thing. And then like, get a bad performance review or they're not like they're not like viewed well by the company so i think regular reviews like what uh, even though they're a little bit possibly dreadful yeah and like take work to prepare for i think Mm -hmm. it's like really necessary for running a product organization so right now we do we do monthly i think i'd like to probably do a little more frequently but we do a monthly design review with every team of course like the design you know, our head of design is doing that more frequently. The PMs are doing that more frequently. I do a review once a month and I get into, we get into detail because uh, we want to know how it works and that helps. Yeah. It also helps me. I mean, I want to be credible when I'm talking to our customers about the roadmap. And if I don't know what's yeah. going on like at a kind of detail level, it's just bad for everybody. Yeah. You know, that's such good advice. It's interesting. As you say that, I realize that Folks with a design background uh, really have an aptitude for this. There's something in the culture of the design around reviews, feedback, critiques. I've always seen design teams like do a good job with that because it's so baked into like the craft, right? Like the the act of like having critiques and feedback and sort of sparring sessions. And I can see how that kind of translating to, you know, whether it's reviewing the roadmap or reviewing someone's performance on a regular basis, like there's sort of lessons there around like the the kind of like frequency and care that you pay to that yeah yeah exactly i love the uh i i do love the the frequency of feedback point too because i i heard somewhere i wish i wish i knew the source or didn't butcher the quote but basically the the idea that like no one should go into uh from a manager's perspective like you don't want to go in to performance reviews with your directs like they shouldn't be surprised about anything it shouldn't be like, hey, here's the annual performance review. And so there's nothing more frustrating, you know, um, as, as as an employee or, or someone reporting to this person. There's nothing more frustrating than like, hey, why am I hearing about this now for the first time? Like, this has been going on for a year or even a quarter. And it's like, so like, I, I always just like kind of took that to heart and, and like that sentiment where it's like, the annual or quarterly or whatever you do kind of cadence around performance reviews make total sense but it shouldn't be like the first time if there's an issue good or bad or like you know compliments um that shouldn't be like the first time people are getting feedback that's kind of the formal version of it but it shouldn't be like wow i'm surprised like you i haven't been doing a good job of this and i'm just hearing about this now 12 months on right yeah well, i have two thoughts on this from a manager mm-hmm. point of view something i've learned is that giving critical feedback about product like should be separate from giving the person feedback on how they work like because people interpret it separately so i've had right in my early management career people be like i had no idea that this was coming and i was like like how how not and so Mm -hmm. you have to be pretty specific about like these things these things need to be improved in the product but as a 
as a result or like as a cause, uh, this is the root cause and it's something that needs to be worked on. But from an employee perspective, that is why over-communicating is so important so that your manager knows what you did. So I see that people are like kind of sometimes shy in their self-assessments and they don't promote their accomplishments. And when you have like a busy yeah. manager or somebody that's like kind of at a senior level, they're not sitting there like as you do stuff like tracking your accomplishments. Sometimes the vocal people or the ones that self-promote a lot, you know, they just mm -hmm. get noticed more. Self-promotion is very important for people, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to that time. And like, that's kind of the at the time of a review, but um, I've never like got maybe a couple managers of mine have asked for like a weekly report, but generally they don't. And I do one anyway, because yeah. how else will they know what's going on? What you want, like you want to be proactive. One, you want them to know you're doing productive things because um, mm -hmm. that's just part of the job. But two, like you want to bring problems or maybe customers you're working with to their attention. Um, so I just do a weekly update, no matter whether I'm asked for it or not. Typically, people aren't going to ask for it. They're like, yeah, I trust you to do your job. But yeah. I think yeah. there's a balance and some responsibility people needed for their own reputation and career advancement there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. Any other um, in terms of kind of like tactical tips or best practices that you would suggest? Yeah, well, maybe I can just like, maybe I'll just, when I was earlier in my career, like getting comfortable with hiring people that maybe are a little bit like that can be more senior than you. So I had this misconception because sure. I worked in this really high performance environment for my first job. And that yeah. like, I mean, our environment there was like, you need to become a director in three years. Like if you're not getting promoted all the time, not like you were out, but like in a lot of high performance cultures, it was like getting promoted yeah. through ma the management track was very important. For sure. That culture yeah. fortunately has changed where we see IC tracks of people who are able to become very senior individual contributors without like having to manage people and mm -hmm. some people, a lot of people just, they don't want to be executive. Like it is a lifestyle yeah. that comes with sacrifices and like, yeah, everybody wants those. So like what I want to get comfortable with is always thought like, Oh, everybody like senior people that I hire, like want my job and it's going to be very competitive. And that's really not the case. Like a lot, it's, you never know yeah. what people's motivations are for coming to work every day and what they want and how much time they want to put in. And that's something that I think getting experienced as one of one and one of many is important. So one of one means like when I worked in that yeah. job and I got to make those cool demos, that was the only designer. And I was like, everybody really appreciated it, but it wasn't yeah. exactly the best craftsperson. So then I worked on uh, products that were sold. That was a different story, and I definitely gained some humility through that experience, but my craft got a lot better. And so I think, like, working with other peers that do the same thing as you is also very important. You got to know mm -hmm. both sides. Yeah. The final yeah. thing is, like, uh, having conviction in what you believe so that you don't have to depend on data for everything. So mm -hmm. I found in that first head of product job, I was, like, kind of just 
insecure, like, even though I knew it was the right things to do, I was kind of insecure. So I'd go and get like, spend all this time getting data and very specific numbers to back up every decision I made. And like, when you do that, actually, you're going to never get to the right amount of data. You're never going to be able to attribute revenue and churn and user data to like everything you do. I mean, it's mm. literally impossible. So yeah. that almost made it less credible. I, I, what I learned over time is having more conviction in what it is I think I should do was maybe like a data point. Um, but anecdotally, also having some that some of that knowledge has been pretty yeah. helpful as well. How do you make sure your or or how do you think about kind of like aligning that conviction with because it's not just about like what you believe to be true, but like getting like other parts and other folks around you or leadership or whatever to kind of like buy into that point of view and be like, yeah, okay, like we're not gonna like, you know, chase down like every shred of evidence about this thing because we, you know, we just we just know like kind of like if we do these things, it's like the score takes care of itself kind of thinking with with some of our some of our actions. So like, yeah, how do you think about like just like getting the other right people kind of lined up with you on that? I think in a tactical tactical example would be like where maybe you might try to give an exact revenue number to some features and stack rank them. Right. Now I would say, you know what? Like, okay, we have three different areas. Maybe one's like just on increasing active usage. We don't care about revenue there, but some we have these like features that really important are really important for new business or retention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I would do is I would just have I would point to three customers that I'd say the customer A, B, and C are saying that this is extremely important to them and they're probably not going to buy the product because of it. Like, there's yeah. just like a much yeah. lower time investment in doing that. Like, so know your yeah. CRM, have be friends with some salespeople and like do, we have to do a top five exercise every quarter where we get a representative from commercial sales, enterprise sales, CS, support. Um, and marketing to give us their top five, like mm -hmm. they did, they go deal with the ranking themselves and then they come to us product and tell us like, what's the top five. I refer to that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's generally very credible. Yeah. 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 But that's, um, that's really good advice. And I, you know, like there's a lot of talk around storytelling and I, I sort of like, as a kind of, you know, product marketer myself and kind of former writer, like storytelling is, is something I kind of pay a, a lot of attention to. It's something that companies are so keen on, like being a good storyteller internally, externally, blah, blah, blah. One of the real kind of tenets of story, even if you just sort of study it from a psychological perspective is like people are attracted to like people connect with individual characters, not like, you know, pools of data, right? Like you could tell someone all the facts, you know, take some, you know, take some sort of like tragedy or, you know, calamity that's happened in the world. Like you could hit people with all the facts and figures and, you know, data around the scope of a tragedy and we kind of process it, you know, like, okay, like I know that's sad or I know that's terrible or whatever, but it doesn't hit emotionally. But like you tell a story of like one person who lived through that hardship and like, make you connect with one character and you could have like a, you know, crying your eyes out emotional moment where it's like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened to this one person. And it could be like a fictional person, right? But it's this idea that like humans, you know, if you want to like 
do all this storytelling that we all claim to care so much about. It's not always about, you know, the average X percent, you know, like telling stories with this like data point of view, but it's like connect it to a character or an individual. And what you said is a great example of that, where it's like this customer over here, they're doing this right now. And they said, if we don't have this feature, they're going to go with a competitor. Like for an executive, it's like, sure, that's anecdotal, but it's like a very emotional, it's a very emotional moment to be like, oh, okay, like I can kind of ground myself psychologically in this, right? So that's that's an interesting perspective. It's super valuable. We have these, uh, we have, um, Robin is a workplace experience. We have these kiosks and status boards that are interactive that our customers can put up on site. Oh, nice. And I went to visit a customer and our, and our buttons were really high or they were mm-hmm. kind of high. They were yeah. too high. And what they yeah. showed us is like, we have people with accessibility challenges that can't use this. So we can't you we can't even implement your interactive one because they can't can't reach the button. And that was like that was like an emotional moment for me. I was like, Yeah. Uh yeah. we have to fix this. A hunt wow, yeah. A hundred percent. And imagine, you know, I can imagine some, you know, some version of a PM coming to you with like you have all the facts and figures and data in the world around like Hey, the average height of, you know, humans in this demographic uh, adjusting for uh, footwear velocity and arm length and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you could put out, put together a whole data package on that, but let's go ahead and have that one moment where you're like, Hey, this is like one person. They can't, they can't reach this. Like they're, you know, like just sort of seeing that and connects so much stronger with you. Um, And the real one, two punches kind of put the two together too, I think. Yeah. I think we could, we'll have to do a round two with this because I, uh, I think we could, we've got, there's plenty more we could talk about and I could talk about this kind of stuff all day. First off is what's just, you know, what's something that's been kind of top of mind for you lately, or, you know, something that you're kind of either wrestling with figuring out, um, yeah, some, something top of mind for you lately. Yeah. So I had this, I had a realization, um, about imposter syndrome. So now I've been in this leadership roles for like 10 years. So I don't think I really, I don't think I really feel internally the imposter syndrome, but I think that a lot of people think of it as like, I don't, I feel like I, I personally internally feel like inadequate and that's uncomfortable for me, but I've been thinking mm-hmm. a lot about the results of it. And I actually think the result of it is that somebody who like, doesn't necessarily feel like they belong in a leadership position doesn't is not aware of the impact of the things that they say and do within the organization and the level of influence that they have. That was my biggest realization is like, I've gotten feedback that, hey, you said this thing and then we've made a decision based off it and it was totally unintentional. Or maybe I'd given somebody like critical feedback that didn't, know me very well and like thought that there would be some consequence uh mm-hmm. but like when i started this new job we did our we did like our first kind of reviews and i gave a lot of feedback and people like didn't want to do them anymore they're like mm-hmm. this feels like a pairing squad and it's like oh i i, I don't want this thinking like i'm just one of you i'm here to help it is not true it does yeah. really not um i think that people in leadership positions like imposter syndrome 
is about you, but it's not about you. It's about the people around you. So you got to really understand that if you have some kind of like VP or C-level title, people are mm-hmm. going to perceive you as that because that's your job and that's your role, whether yeah. you feel comfortable in it or not. So if you mm-hmm. want to be successful in that role, you have to know the impact of the things that you're doing. As like the, I don't know, somewhere it clicked for me. I was like, yeah, I definitely have been in situations where I thought I, I still think of myself as like the new person. And the reality is that that's just not true. Yeah, that's um, that's that's great advice. You know, I've realized this in a big way. It's not exactly what you're saying, but kind of related. If you if a per, if you're ever so I'm doing a lot of these interviews right now, for example. So I end up like kind of like watching myself, hearing myself on recordings. Or if you're someone who like listens to meetings back, or you know, we talked about public speaking. If you give a presentation and like watch yourself, anyone ever has a chance to like listen to themselves on an audio or audio and video recording, you will realize like. Oh, I'm coming off in a lot of moments. You're like going to realize like I'm coming off in a way that I really didn't intend. And I seem like this, but really I'm just like, maybe I'm thinking about something and I seem like that, but I don't really mean to be acting this way or, you know, like I could see how someone perceived. And I've really realized that. And it's helped me sort of like understand other people in a lot of ways too, where it's like, maybe if someone seems annoyed, like they could not be at all. Or if they seem confused, like maybe they're not. Or if they seem sort of flip about a certain thing, like maybe they're not because often like we're not, you know, we're not presenting and expressing ourselves the way we think we are. And just giving other people the benefit of the doubt around that, I think is super important too. But yeah, I'm, I mean, the, uh, the whole- So hard to watch thing. and listen to yourself. It's brutal. I tell you, it's brutal, but yeah. it's it's super helpful, especially like, you know, people do the sound of your own voice thing. And it's like, I, I can say like, you get over that. Like, it just takes a lot of, it takes a lot of repetition and it's not fun. Cool, yep. cool. We've got, uh, you know, I like to ask product people about products. Um, product people are passionate about products. What's something you've been, you know, trying out or excited about lately? This could be, you know, just on the personal side, could be something for work, whatever. Yeah. So I always like I often get stumped when I when people ask me this question because I'm like I don't you know geek out really on other like tech software but products yeah. products are just like things you use okay so mm-hmm. I'll tell you about a couple products that I'm for sure uh, pretty impressed with these days so one is I just got this hatch sleep machine and and it's like a mobile controlled you know it has like these sounds and lights and like there's definitely science behind it of understanding what helps people with sleep but i love that's really easy to set up um and it's beautiful but what i saw is like when i was buying it i think i saw somewhere on the site maybe i did a search for it and it was like i and the search result came up was hatch baby and i was like what's hatch baby i'm not yeah i'm not a baby like i still need a baby product <laughs> yeah right and it looks like the company started for and discovered that like adults would benefit from it too and they pivoted so like as a product person i love that sort of like realization that there is market and that they came to and now i benefit from it so that's so cool love that one yeah i've got that's so funny we've got the hatch for our our toddler and it's like it's awesome it's been like in his room like his whole life now and it's like i i I didn't know they made a, an adult version of it, but it makes total sense. And it's like, 
yeah, like I love the the sort of strategy of like how simple and elegant it is to sort of just like apply the same kind of similar product in a different context like that and find success. That's is like really cool. Yeah. All right. The next one is liquid dust. I just love the brand, but you know, it's cool to die. Mm-hmm. So it's liquid dust water, sparkling water, et cetera. So I'll tell you like, it's very practical. So I love the design, but it also is very practical. So I can take this yeah. can. Oh, and it's sustainable. More mm-hmm. sustainable than um, I can take it to the gym so I can use it in Soul Cycle, which I definitely appreciate. So I don't have to like buy their five or six dollar boxed water when I'm there. But mm-hmm. I also really like that there's kind of a movement for non-alcoholic drinks you can have at a party or an event so that people can kind of choose and like. Liquid death is one of those things that you can still look cool carrying a party. Um, so I feel like it's sort of more, de- it's like democratization of beverages. Yeah. I love that's that a, brand. They also have that's great a merch. great one. That's a great also example of just like kind of, you know, taking an existing thing, like arguably like the most important existing thing, water, um, and like layering on like really cool branding, new packaging, like getting people like excited about it. The company's done incredible. I've seen some stuff like, um, you know, like a hundred plus million in revenue, like two or three years after starting. It's just like insane how popular that's become so how quickly that's, yeah. It's like a masterclass in so many things with product and brand. There's also an entrepreneurial thing, which is most people are going to get shot down who in their right mind gets into the water business, right? Like right. any V, I mean, uh, I don't know what their VC background is, but if they I went think, out for yeah. personal VC funding in like 2018, yeah, I can guess what they're been. Um, and so yeah. like, if you believe in it and you like build following in your own way, like sometimes you do that and uh, yeah. yeah, you know, it's commodity. Water is a commodity, but it has a, special experience around and i do believe that the experience can be the product or the brand can be the product so it's the perfect yeah, um, yeah absolutely the final example i have uh, i just started like had a bunch of clothes and uh i had heard about the real real which is like where you can set, mm-hmm. resell luxury clothes and they do all the work for you mm-hmm. so like the concept is cool but i actually went to their physical location and i was shocked it was like this almost like huge department store, but they had all these couches you can sit. They had all these people you could, um, and they had like a coffee bar there. I was just totally surprised. Yes. I thought it was just this kind of like online business or and uh, so the physical experience is what impressed me most. Now we'll see how we'll see how much money I get back for these clothes processed. But uh, yeah, no, I, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty happy about at least the experience. That's awesome. Yeah, I've heard about this uh, this company too. I'll have to uh, I'll take a closer look. But like another great example of taking something that's like maybe not a commodity, but like think of the perception and experience around like secondhand clothes. Like it doesn't feel like a high end branded experience. And like I'm looking at their site right now, and it like it feels like you know what you would get from like a kind of high fashion brand or like a, you know, like a premium luxury sort of, um, and they've sort of layered that onto something that otherwise would have been definitely not treated that way. So yeah, that's, that's, that's really cool. That's a great example. Yeah. Cool. 
this has been super fun. Uh, if folks want to say hi, you know, learn more, get in touch, anything like that, what's uh, what's maybe a way they could do that? LinkedIn, Sierra Peter, it's probably probably the best way to get in touch. Feel free to send a message or um, cool, cool. connect. All right. We'll be sure to drop your uh, we'll drop your LinkedIn link in the show notes. Uh, so if folks want to say hi, they can find you there. Otherwise, this was super fun today. Thanks so much for uh, thanks for so much for coming on the show today. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Hey, Blake here again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Launch Notes podcast. If you work on a product team, whether you're in product management, product marketing, product ops, or any other supporting function, go check out the Launch Awesome community. Hundreds of the top product minds from companies like Google, Atlassian, Twilio, and more are in the community sharing their expertise every day. This free Slack community is a great place to connect with and learn from real product leaders, actual practitioners who are in the trenches building and launching products at some of the most exciting startups and SaaS companies around. To join, head to the link in the show notes or just do a quick search for Launch Awesome and it'll come right up. Finally, if you're a fan of this show, don't forget to subscribe so you'll be first to know about new episodes. And of course, we'd be thrilled if you left us a review. Reviews not only help other people find the show, but also just lets us know which content you find most valuable so we can create even more of it. Thanks again for being here.